Hey everyone. Before we get started this week, I wanted to say thank you yet again for all of the support. The podcast has gotten a big following on Facebook and it's growing every week, which is terrific. And we're seeing more and more subscribers come in on iTunes and SoundCloud as well. So thank you for all of that. Continue to spread the word and let people know about the show. Now, also, as I do every week, I wanted to remind you that even though we don't have any sponsors, there are ways that you can show your support. And I don't mean for the show, but I mean for some important, worthy causes. This week, our episode deals with the myth of Pygmalion and Galatea, and we talk a lot about what it means for a woman to lose agency and identity in her life. And fortunately, there are a lot of people around the world working very hard to try and prevent that from continuing. Um, There are a few places that you should check out and consider donating your time or your money to supporting their cause. Uh, One of them is Girls Not Brides. Uh, They're at www.girlsnotbrides.org. Every year, 15 million girls are married off before they turn 18. That's 30 girls a minute. They're forced into adulthood, and in most cases, they're denied access to education, to health care, and most importantly, to the opportunity to pursue their own life. Girls Not Brides is working hard to try and reverse that, and they deserve your support. The National Partnership for Women and Families is a group that has fought for every major policy advancement that has helped women and families in the past three decades. The group fights for national legislation, but they also can help individuals find the resources they need to fight their own battles. Uh, You can learn more about them and support them at nationalpartnership.org. And then also consider supporting the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, RAIN, R-A-I-N-N dot org. They're the country's largest anti-sexual assault organization, and they run the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-HOPE. All of these organizations are well worth your time and support, and please don't forget that the most support you can offer is to someone in your community. There are churches and synagogues and temples, as well as nonprofit organizations, soup kitchens, women's shelters, uh, local hotlines. Even the smallest amount that you can donate of your time or your money can turn someone's life around. Please consider supporting some of these organizations. Okay, let's get started. Now, now shall, shall I tell of things, things that, change? that change? New being out of old. New being, New being out of old. Since, Since you, O oh gods, oh gods, created mutable, created mutable arts, created mutable arts and gifts, arts and gifts. Give me the voice, the voice, the voice. Give me the voice, the voice to tell the shifting, shifting, the shifting story of the world.
You know the story. There once was a man, a sculptor, kind of heart and talented beyond any other. But for all of his skill and kindness, no woman would be his wife. And so, lonely beyond belief, he one day began to sculpt a statue of a woman. Lovely and pure as marble, his heart quickened and his hands trembled as her form was revealed. But she was only a block of stone, a cold fancy of his desperate heart. And then, one day, he went to the temple of Aphrodite to pray. The man's heart was so hungry for love that the goddess took pity on him, and when he returned home, he found that the statue he had fashioned with such care and devotion had been transformed into a living, breathing woman, with nothing in her heart but love for her maker and her master. They married in great joy, and even the goddess Aphrodite, unseen sculptor of their love, came to offer her blessings. The story of Pygmalion is one of the best-loved tales of all time, and one of the most tapped for inspiration by writers, artists, filmmakers, musicians. From the earliest version of the myth all the way through to My Fair Lady and even the most recent science fiction thrillers, the story has endured. And almost all of it, that story everyone loves so much, is bunk. The story we all think we know isn't the real story. Because as romantic as this story has become over the years, at least in some versions, Pygmalion is actually a bit of a prig. And, in fact, he's downright kinky at times. Let's start at the beginning. The story of Pygmalion comes to us from Ovid's Metamorphoses, published in 8 AD. Now, it's that historical context that's interesting with regards to the story of Pygmalion. Most of the stories in Metamorphoses are direct lifts from Hellenic sources. Ovid was adept at assimilating and adapting, if not absorbing, the conquered culture of the Greeks. He was a Roman, after all. It's what they did. In the case of Pygmalion, however, scholars are uncertain of its provenance. Like the story of Baucis and Philemon from episode 1, hashtag callback, the story of Pygmalion is quite possibly the invention of Ovid, as it appears to lack any literary precedent in the Greek myths. It looks like Ovid had a few stories that he invented, contributing them to the existing canon. Historically, however, the waters are a bit murkier. As I understand it, and this is, as always, drawn from my exhaustive research of reliable contemporary sources and, you know, Wikipedia, there were three historical figures named Pygmalion. Well, actually, they were named Pumayatan, the Phoenician name from which the Greek name Pygmalion is derived. Pumayatan was possibly either a king of Cyprus, a high priest of Aphrodite, or he was a sculptor. Possibly all three. King, priest, artist. Each aspect has literary and historical reference points, so it's difficult to tell which one Ovid might have been thinking of when he wrote his story. But all we know for certain is that there was a legendary king of Cyprus named Pumayatan, and that later 
Ovid wrote an episode in two metamorphoses in which Pygmalion's story is told. In Ovid, Pygmalion is neither priest nor king. He is a sculptor of no small talent, living in the city of Amathus in Cyprus. If my etymological research is correct, the name Amathus means full of sand. But what we do know from archaeological records is that Aphrodite had a sizable following there in the city, with a large temple dedicated to her honor. And the entire city, or so we're told, was devoted to her worship. It was a royal city, which is perhaps where we get the connection to Pygmalion the king. Or perhaps Pygmalion was the high priest in the temple of Aphrodite. There are some later texts that suggest both of these. Who's to say? It's impossible to know now. For all its glory in ancient times, Amathus is hollow and empty now, a crumbled ruin abandoned to the sands. But the myth of Pygmalion has endured over time, perhaps spreading its ripples farther than any other myth in Ovid. It's a story that finds new life in each generation and continues to thrill and inspire artists and audiences alike. Metamorphoses isn't just a collection of stories, an anthology with one placed after the other with little to connect them. Ovid works supremely hard to gather the stories and group them together with an overarching conceit that borrows and preserves the original method of their transmission through the ages to him. That tradition of oral storytelling becomes a frequent device in the text to help add resonance and connectivity between the tales. That is to say, as a framing structure for much of the book, people tell other people's stories. And sometimes the characters in their stories often interrupt the stories to digress into a completely different story. In essence, by weaving his myths together using this literary device, Ovid is reproducing and honoring the origins of those stories. Now, the section of the text in which the myth of Pygmalion is found is part of a larger cycle of stories told by Orpheus. You know Orpheus, poor doomed son of Apollo, husband of Eurydice, for whom he went to the underworld to rescue from death. Just a quick note, we'll cover the story of Orpheus and Eurydice a little bit later this year, mainly so I can resist going off on the mother of all tangents right now. The story of Orpheus is beloved and has been throughout the ages. What is less known and quite infrequent in the retelling is what happened after Orpheus returned from the underworld, alone and stinging with humiliation over his failure. In Ovid, Orpheus returns from the underworld alone and, in time, completely turns his back on the love of women, preferring instead the company of young men, quote, plucking the first flower in the brief springtime of their early manhood. And, strangely enough, the stories that Orpheus tells following his return, as recorded in Ovid, are notably negative towards women. The Orphic hymns exhibit a mildly disturbing misogyny, and Pygmalion is one of the worst. Now, I don't want to get too precious with my own modern, squishy sensibilities, but 
I find myself struggling with the story of Pygmalion in some very unexpected ways. I thought I knew the story. Rereading it, I realized I was wrong. In Ovid, the story of Pygmalion has a small prelude or introduction, laying the groundwork for what is to come. In that prelude, the city of Amathus has been cursed by Aphrodite. Apparently, there stood an altar at the gates of the city, dedicated to Zeus, dedicated to the welcome of strangers. And recall the importance of Xenia in the ancient world as we discussed in episode 1. And remember the high regard Zeus held for those who were hospitable to strangers. On the altar at the gates of Amathus, however, a visitor to the city was slain, murdered. His blood stained the altar as the sin stained the hearts of the people of the city. Now this blasphemy so outraged Aphrodite that she considered abandoning the city and country altogether but she opted instead to punish the people. In her wrath, she transformed them, presumably those directly responsible for the crime, into bullocks. They were, in essence, transformed into sacrificial animals for the crime of defiling the sacrificial altar. Fine, but what does this have to do with Pygmalion? Well, once Ovid establishes Amathus as a stronghold of Aphrodite, he moves on to the story of the Propoetides, women of the city who denied the divinity of Aphrodite and her right to punish them. And so, being cursed by the goddess, they become the first to ever prostitute their bodies, quote, in public, whatever that means. And this punishment is handed down by the goddess because of their blasphemy. Listen to what Ovid says. Nevertheless, the indecent propoetides dared to deny her divinity. In her anger, Venus made them the first, it is said, to sell their own bodies, and as their shame ceased, they lost the power of blushing, and they turned into stones. The goddess of love is not one to take an insult lightly, nor should she. Those who worship and respect her receive such blessings that their hearts are overwhelmed with love and joy. And those who don't, their ability to love is torn from them. Their hearts are turned to flints until they too are like the stones. And so now we come to Pygmalion. He sees the wickedness of the Propoetides and decides, somehow, that all women are shameless hussies, which is why I said earlier he was such a prig. You know what? Let's read the story together. Pygmalion observed how these women lived lives of sordid indecency and dismayed by the numerous defects of character nature had given the feminine spirit, he stayed a bachelor having no female companion. Here we see an example of that rather telling misogyny that percolates through so many of Orpheus's stories. It seems that once he turned his back on women, his sorrow and disappointment curdled something within him, 
sour and ugly, the blame he lays on women is remarkably stark. One might be inclined to forgive him, given his misfortunes, but that would overlook the facts. Orpheus was the one who failed his wife. He was the one who lost faith in the gods, flaunted the fates, and ultimately failed himself and his bride, squandering the second chance that kind Persephone managed to wrangle from Hades. But I digress. We'll do Orpheus later this year. So, women are shameless and wicked. What does Pygmalion do? Well, during that time, he created an ivory statue, a work of most marvelous art, and gave it a figure better than any living woman could boast of. And promptly, he conceived a passion for his own creation. Boy, oh boy, where to begin? You can imagine where this is headed, of course. I don't want to, as the lady says, yuck anyone's yums, but for a guy so offended by female sexuality, he sure dives in deep when it's under his control. In Ovid, creation is the ultimate ownership. Pygmalion created his ideal woman out of ivory, which in the ancient world was a symbol of both purity, obviously, but also, tellingly, Ivory symbolized silence. It's like the old joke I just made up, which says, I like my women like I like my ivory. White and pure? No, quiet. Interestingly enough, ivory is one of the few organic precious materials, like jet and amber. It stands apart from the other precious metals and gemstones in that it was once alive. So rather than choose marble, which might have been more common for a sculpture of a full-sized female figure, I'm not fat-shaming, I'm just assuming Pygmalion wasn't working in miniature, he went with ivory. He went with something that was once alive, something that could retain the heat of his hands more than cold, lifeless marble. Let's continue. You would have thought it alive so like a real maiden that only its natural modesty kept it from moving. Art concealed artfulness. Pygmalion gazed in amazement, burning with love for what in likeness was a body. Often he stretched forth a hand to touch his creation, attempting to settle the issue. Was it a body, or was it this he would not concede, a mere statue? He gives it kisses, and they are returned, he imagines. Now he addresses, and now he caresses it, feeling his fingers sink into its warm, pliant flesh, and fears he will leave blue bruises all over its body. If you weren't wondering a little bit about Pygmalion's private kinks before now, well, you're free to do so from here on out. While I'm inclined to take mythology at face value, the phrase, and fears he will leave blue bruises, makes me wonder what really frightens him. Moving on. He seeks to win its affections with words and with presents, pleasing to girls, such as seashells and pebbles and tame birds, armloads of flowers in thousands of different colors, lilies, bright painted balls, curious insects and amber, 
He dresses it up and puts diamond rings on its fingers, gives it a necklace, a lacy brassiere, and pearl earrings. Note the lack of a personal pronoun. Though he's courting it like a woman, desperate with desire, the sculpture remains an it to him. Not a her, not a she. And let's be honest. Pygmalion doesn't begin with courtship, the giving of trinkets and offerings. Those come after he's already put his hands on her, begun to have his way with her. Even though all such adornments truly become her, she does not seem to be any less beautiful naked. He lays her down on a bed with a bright purple cover and calls her his bedmate and slips a few soft downy pillows under her head as though she were able to feel them. The guy's overcome by lust, barely in control of himself. The trinkets and offerings feel more like an apology to this new goddess, atoning for his treatment of her. It's either classic abuser cycle, insanity, or it has some parallels with basic dominant submissive relationships. I don't mean to be judgmental. I'm I'm imposing a modern sensibility on an ancient text? Definitely. But lacy brassiere and pearl earrings, I can't even. Again, I'm not shaming anyone. I've known this story for a long time, but through second and third hand sources, My Fair Lady, George Bernard Shaw, romantic poetry and painting, I had no idea what the story really was about, and honestly, I'm still a little shocked by it. He lays her down on a bed with a bright purple cover. Now, note that this is the first time the sculpture is referred to as a her. Something has been changed through this ritual. In the alchemy of sex, a transmutation has occurred. At least in the mind of Pygmalion. This all coincides with a festival honoring Aphrodite. The holiday honoring Venus had come, and all Cyprus turned out to celebrate. Heifers with gilded horns buckle under the death blow, and incense roars up in the thick clouds. What are the chances that these sacrificial animals are the former transgressors of the previous story? Are the ones who blasphemed Xenia and the altar of Zeus now sacrificial animals in their own turn? Pygmalion stood by and offered up this faint-hearted prayer. If you in heaven are able to give us whatever we ask for, then I would like as my wife, and not daring to say, my ivory maiden, he said, one like my statue. Since golden Venus was present there at her altar, She knew what he wanted to ask for, and as a good omen, three times the flames soared and leapt right up to the heavens. Aphrodite was there. She knew his heart. She knew what he desired most. And she gave it to him. Once home, he went straight to the replica of his sweetheart, threw himself down on the couch, and repeatedly kissed her. She seemed to grow warm, and so he repeated the action. Aroused, 
The ivory softened and, losing its stiffness, yielded, submitting to his caresses as wax softens when it is warmed by the sun and handled by fingers, taking on many forms, and by being used, becomes useful. I've got nothing. We're a long way from the rain in Spain. She is alive and her veins leap under his fingers. She felt his kisses, and, timidly blushing, she opened her eyes to the sunlight, and at the same time first looked upon her lover and heaven. The scholar, Stephanie Eck, to whom I am indebted for much of the historical context of this episode, makes careful note of that last moment. As the creation comes to life, she does not look upon anything but Pygmalion, dazzled by him as by the sun. She opens her eyes and sees the sky, sees him there above her, looking down. He is, in essence, her god. The story goes on to finish up with the news that Pygmalion and his bride, she isn't given a name, they're married. Aphrodite attends the nuptials, incognito, of course, and she blesses them. In time, Pygmalion's literal trophy wife becomes a mother, and the creation is going to bring forth life of her own. Now, there's one or two key details missing from this story, two telling details that serve as important footnotes to understanding this myth and its resonance throughout history. First, like I said before, she has no name. None. She's not much more than an object, even after she's given life. Later, much, much later, she is given the name Galatea. It's in the late 1700s, but that's just a poetic description for the girl. Galatea means pale as milk, after all. So we have to take it to heart that, for whatever reasons, Ovid, and by extension Pygmalion, never saw fit to give the girl a name. This reduces her. It diminishes her. She is property to be used for good or ill as her husband desires. This is true before she's even given life, as well as afterwards. And, adding insult to injury, the nameless woman has no voice. She can neither proclaim her love nor protest her treatment at the hands of her creator, her captor, and her god. Harsh? Maybe. Maybe I'm overreacting way down the line in history. Nevertheless, the resonance of Pygmalion spreads far and wide. It is a timeless story. No, Scratch that. It's a story that is very much an inhabitant of its time, seamlessly reinventing itself with each generation. The idea of a creation coming to life through divine intervention is nothing new. And it would take literally hours, if not days, to go through any kind of comprehensive look at all of the ripples that emanate from Pygmalion. But there are a few that stand out in my mind as worth mentioning. In no particular order, we've got My Fair Lady, which was an adaptation of George Bernard Shaw's feminist manifesto, until they changed the ending and essentially made it into a romantic comedy. 
I'm also reminded of a story from The Twilight Zone called The Lonely, where a prisoner left on an asteroid receives a do-it-yourself kit for building an automated woman. She brings joy and comfort into his lonely life, and since this is The Twilight Zone, you know things don't end well. And, of course, there's also the classic episode in which a mannequin desperately tries to escape her humdrum fate in the department store. Speaking of mannequin, let's not forget the 1987 movie that my wife calls the most 80s movie of all 80s movies. Up until a few months ago, I somehow managed to avoid seeing it. And now that I have endured it, I have to admit, it is at least a Pygmalion story. A little more recently, and several levels of quality above Mannequin, there's the 2015 film Ex Machina. Writer and director Alex Garland takes the Pygmalion story and reinvents it for modern audiences. Seriously, it's a great movie. It tells the story of an eccentric inventor who recruits a young novice to evaluate a new artificial intelligence he's created. Garland delivers a massive amount of intriguing ideas and downright Hitchcockian levels of suspense. And speaking of Hitchcock, I think a case can be made that the movie Vertigo is a variation on the Pygmalion myth. At the very least, it's influenced by Hitchcock's own life and his Pygmalion-like tendency to fixate on an actress and mold and control her to his will. The ripples of Pygmalion spread throughout Hitchcock's work and even into his personal life. There's no denying it. As a story, Pygmalion takes a very interesting path through history to get to us. The perception of the myth from classical period well into the early 19th century is pretty diverse. The focus of different adaptations changed with every era. However, early reception to the myth happened within a Christian context, and it's not surprising that the idea of Pygmalion worshipping a statue wasn't exactly well received. The idea that Pygmalion would fall in love with his own art and worship it wasn't just considered insane. It was considered sinful, idolatrous. And though some later writers and scholars saw the myth as a positive ideal of an artist's love of his work, it never really managed to shake off some of those underlying themes which some people find a little disturbing. But this theme of the artist falling in love with his art is a strong one, and endures through all of literature. Interestingly enough, the consequences of such obsession are fairly evenly split between romantic and tragic, depending on who's telling the story. Pygmalion seems to lead into the territory of gender dynamics. It's always a man who creates a woman. One notable exception to this dynamic is in the story of Pinocchio by Carlo Collodi. And adding a few cosmetic changes, Collodi sees the story in a different way, but still completely 
preserving the story of Pygmalion. A man greatly desires a son. Notably, he lives in a city overrun with ne'er-do-well boys, echoing Pygmalion's aversion to the wanton propoetides. And so the man crafts an image, which is then given life by a supernatural being sympathetic to the man's prayers. The longing of a parent for a child and creating a model or sculpture which is then given life by the gods also has echoes in the origin story of William Marston's classic comic book and feminist icon, Wonder Woman. Her origin story is more or less another straight lift from Pygmalion. Her mother, Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons, wants a daughter, but she has no consort. She sculpts a child out of clay and prays to the gods. Her prayers are answered, and the clay comes to life. And thus is Wonder Woman born. Now, the story behind the story of Wonder Woman and the man who created her is fascinating. And in a strange case of synchronicity, much like the story of Alfred Hitchcock, William Marston's story resonates with many of the same themes that we see in Pygmalion. I don't know if I can fully do it justice here in the time that I have, but Marston's life is fascinating. He was a psychologist, and he invented the character of Wonder Woman to provide an alternative to the violent solutions that were pervading male-dominated superhero comics. He said, quote, Not even girls want to be girls so long as our feminine archetype lacks force, strength, and power. Not wanting to be girls, they don't want to be tender, submissive, peace-loving as good women are. Women's strong qualities have become despised because of their weakness. The obvious remedy is to create a feminine character with all the strength of Superman plus all the allure of a good and beautiful woman. A lofty, if not slightly chauvinistic, goal. He's at least good-intentioned. Marston was also credited with inventing the first lie detector, which not only inspired the famous golden lasso of Wonder Woman, but it also has fascinating parallels with a recent version of the Pygmalion story I mentioned earlier, the film Ex Machina, in which the Turing test plays a major role in the plot. See, the Turing test is a mental exercise proposed as a method for determining if an artificial intelligence has true consciousness. That is to say, If you are communicating with an AI and can't tell whether or not you're communicating with a real person, then it doesn't matter. You are dealing with something that has a human-level consciousness. Now, in recent years, the details of Marston's personal life show he had somewhat unconventional ideas about the typical marriage and family as well. Marston and his wife, Elizabeth, lived with a woman named Olive Byrne, who was, by all accounts, the third member of their marriage. Both women had children fathered by Marston, and the entire family lived and raised together in a single home. 
After Marston's death, Elizabeth and Olive continued on as before. The overt elements of dominance and submission that Marston layered into Wonder Woman's first adventures were, according to all accounts, an outgrowth of his home life and relationship with Elizabeth and Olive. The Pygmalion myth has an interesting radioactive half-life. Not only does it resonate through stories across a broad swath of history, it also seems to bleed over into the real world and cause subtle echoes in the lives of the artists who dare to toy with it. Marston, Hitchcock, and so on. I know, even when I try to avoid tangents, I still walk right into them. Back to the path. The clay of Wonder Woman's story, the clay that she is molded from, recalls another creation from mythology and folklore. The golem. The golem is a very old concept, dating back to some of the earliest texts in Judaism. In fact, Adam, the first man, formed of the earth, was, more or less, originally a golem created by God. According to the folklore, a golem is a humanoid creature, exclusively male in form, though usually sexless, created out of mud or clay. Technically speaking, a golem is an earth elemental brought to life to carry out the commands of its creator. In the folklore, the golem is brought to life by either inscribing the Hebrew word for life on its forehead or by inserting a small scroll containing a spell into its mouth. The mythology of the golem is rich and deep, not unlike myself, and there is a lot there to explore in future episodes, but suffice it to say that the creature is given life, albeit the passive life of a slave, and the power for this life comes from the will of its creator, channeling the power of God. The golem plays a particular role in folklore, usually being brought into existence in order to help a community shake off the shackles of an oppressor. The golem is, in essence, an agent of will, animated by the power of God and directed by its master. And it's an easy step from the golem to the modern Prometheus, Frankenstein. Now, Frankenstein's creature was not made from the earth, though it was procured from the earth, from human clay, but clay nonetheless. And what oppressor does Frankenstein want to defeat? Death itself. Once his gruesome creation is assembled, Victor Frankenstein brings it to life not through mystical means, but rather the power of science. Well, fairly dodgy science, but science nonetheless. Electricity is used to reanimate this ragdoll corpse. More to the point, it's lightning that Victor Frankenstein draws down from the heavens. Lightning, the gift of power that the Cyclops bestowed on Zeus so that he could defeat his father Kronos, the god of time, the greatest oppressor of us all. I bet you think I've gotten off track again, don't you? 
Well, remember that the follow-up to the first Frankenstein movie was James Whale's classic Bride of Frankenstein, in which the monster is now begging for a companion of his own, someone he can be with in this cold world, demanding his God and Creator bring her to life for him. More Ripples In the 1970s, a professor of robotics named Masahiro Mori coined the phrase, the uncanny valley. He used it to refer to the emotional disconnect between human beings and humanoid robots. Mori's theory basically boils down to the idea that the more human a robot is made to appear, the emotional response generated in a human will hit a peak of positive empathetic response before rapidly falling off into deep revulsion. It's that in-between place, between empathy and revulsion, where the uncanny valley lies. Think of it as an emotional Turing test. In recent years, the uncanny valley has become shorthand for criticism of those hyper-realistic computer renderings and characters in video games and movies. It's a term critics can use to explain the vaguely grotesque appearance or body movements of a CGI character. The character might be superbly rendered in a photorealistic style, but something in our mind recognizes it as artificial, and we're taken out of the fantasy, retreating or recoiling from the artifice. You know what I mean. You've seen it in movies, I'm sure. Those rubbery movements, that slightly jerky motion that CGI characters have, looking like something inhuman trying to imitate a real person's walk, the vague flatness of the gaze in their exquisitely rendered digital eyes, the stiffness of their jaw or lips. There's an absence of emotional texture. It's all there, but something is missing. Sometime in the early 2000s, I remember reading a magazine article about a company called Real Doll, which manufactures full-sized realistic dolls approximating the look, feel, weight, and texture of the female form as closely as possible. According to the article, those primitive blow-up dolls of the 1950s were cave paintings compared to these marvels of engineering and technology. Every possible detail of the human form was recreated and fashioned with as much realism as possible. And not only visual realism. And, as you might imagine, they were extremely popular and came at a premium price. I did some checking. The company is still around. And the advances in materials and technology have pushed their products to the very edge of realistic representation of human form. After looking at the photos on their website, and it was research, damn it, I swear, I can safely say that their efforts for total realism have, at least visually, pushed them past the boundary of the uncanny valley. They might be called real dolls, but they don't look real. Now, the article I read spent a fair amount of time talking about this sort of person who would purchase this kind of a doll. They name their dolls, like Cabbage Patch Kids, 
giving them personalities and buying them extensive and expensive wardrobes. In addition, and somewhat surprisingly considering what they were made for, the dolls are not only limited to the bedroom, but the owners will display them throughout the house in normal clothes, moving them from room to room throughout the day and evening, posing them in realistic settings, sitting on the couch with their master watching TV, sitting across from him at the kitchen table during dinner. Effectively, they're treated like a particularly pliant and submissive companion and life partner. You have to wonder if any of them celebrate birthdays or anniversaries. There's so much to think about here in the context of Pygmalion, but at the cost of thousands and thousands of dollars and an even deeper emotional investment that you must have to make, it all speaks of a deep loneliness and a desire to love and be loved. The closer you get to the edge of the uncanny valley, the more danger there is of losing your footing, of tipping off balance, or even worse, succumbing to that insane impulse that takes hold of us sometimes when we stand at a great height and look down, the impulse to just step off into the darkness. Step back. Don't get too close. You never know what might be down there, waiting. There is a school of thought that holds that there is far more to this reality beyond the material world, beyond the usual three or four dimensions that we take for granted. And given this, the same school of thought holds that certain intangibles, such as ideas, stories, and dreams, are demonstrably as real as anything else we experience. Because all that we experience is experienced in our minds. Therefore, the intangibles of our imagination are just as real as anything else we experience because it really is all filtered through our mind. Even further than this, the theory holds that these other levels or dimensions of experience, specifically those of imagination, are not barren beyond what we bring to them, but rather they boast a significantly diverse ecosystem flora and fauna as varied and thriving as anything in our so-called real world. Now, here's where some people diverge a bit. Some people believe that the entities of imagination, stories, characters, dreams, gods, demons, you name it, they're all present in that place and push through into our world through art. That is, the inspiration we find ourselves entranced by when we create is nothing more than these other entities coming through in our minds, using us as a bridge. We are their medium, if you will, into our world. Others would disagree and assert that whatever is there on the other side is, in fact, entirely other and autonomous from us. But as we draw closer to it, or it draws closer to us, certain kinds of entities from that place will take on an identity based on our own psyche and expectations, gathering form and identity from us, using whatever we bring to the encounter, literally clothing themselves in our ideas. 
And then there are some people who believe both of these things are most likely true. At least, we hope they're true. It would explain so much. In Eastern mysticism, specifically Tibetan and Indian Buddhism, there is a practice of deep concentration and meditation that is focused on one specific goal, the creation of a tangible idea, a thought form that can operate in this reality and interact on the material level. It's called a tulpa. That is to say, they believe that deep concentration and meditation practice can produce a non-material entity shaped into existence and subject to the will of the priest. The explorer and spiritualist Alexandra David Neal reported on these practices during an extended pilgrimage she made to Tibet. In Tibet, she observed the meditation practices of the Buddhist priests and, in time, she was able to create her own tulpa. In her case, as an experiment, she crafted the form of an old priest in her mind and meditated on it day after day after day. And, in time, it slowly became present in her reality. At first, people would ask her, who was that old priest I saw you walking with the other day? And on that day, she had been out walking alone. And then, in time, she saw it as well. The entity, the tulpa, had become tangible to the point where other people could see and interact with it. She could send it off to deliver messages. She wrote of her adventures and cataloged some of the phenomenon that she and others experienced. But she hadn't counted on one of the side effects of bringing such a manifestation to life. Over time, the teachings say, tulpas gradually become less and less compliant, and gradually they begin to assert their own will. Ultimately, they can become unruly and even menacing once all their control has eroded. Such was the case with the thought form of the old priest that Alexandra David Neal had brought into being. Once she realized it was completely out of her control, she went back to the priests who had trained her and asked them how to resolve the problem. Now, as with the invocation, the dispelling of the entity required an extensive amount of time and concentration, even longer than what had been required to bring it into existence. Much longer. It had gotten stronger, somehow, since coming here to our reality. However skeptical you might be of these anecdotes, other studies have been documented a little bit closer to home than Tibet, and with equally interesting and troubling results. Probably the most famous of these is the Philip experiment from 1972, in which a mathematician partnered with a psychologist. They assembled a group to participate in a study of so-called supernatural phenomena. Following a careful, methodical process, the group worked together to develop a fictional character, someone wholly made up with a completely bogus backstory, history, and personal life. 
The premise that they set out to explore was whether or not the power of the mind had the ability to take any idea and, through the focus of will, bring it to life under somewhat controlled conditions. Philip Aylford was the name of the character they created, and once they had fleshed out his entire history and life story to their satisfaction, they began to conduct a series of seances to attempt to reach and communicate with the spirit of their creation, as though he had once been a living man the way his history said. After a number of attempts, they were ready to give up on the experiment. But then something shifted, and certain phenomena were observed. Wrappings, moving furniture, breezes from unknown sources, most of it could easily be attributed to the power of suggestion, and more importantly, none of it was recorded or verified through traditional scientific methods. That is, Unexplainable things happened and were reported on, but the scientific process wasn't strictly followed to document and verify the events. Subsequent experiments with different groups attempted the creation of other personalities, and they yielded surprisingly similar results. They heard rappings, furniture moved, and so on. Somehow, even though there was no genuine historical figure named Philip Aylesford, the team was able to make contact and communicate with an entity claiming to be Philip, an entity that was able to confirm minute detail from the backstory that they'd developed. The idea that such concentration of will could create or invite Entities of another imaginary dimension has long been a fascination of mine. I think the first time I came across the concept at all was in Charles Williams' 1937 novel, Descent into Hell. In the novel, an Englishman named Lawrence Wentworth finds himself rejected by a young woman upon whom he has become obsessed. Reeling from the rejection, he retreats into his own disappointment and obsession wallowing in bitterness and unrequited selfish desire. So strong is his yearning that a doppelganger of the woman he lusted for appears to him. And slowly he is driven mad by the presence of a lover identical to the one who rejected him. The entity has all the presence and tangibility of a real woman. And though no one else can see her, Wentworth gorges himself on her presence, rejecting all other human contact in society. It is his infernal descent that the title of the book refers to. It's been a while, but if I recall correctly, the book is somewhat unclear as to whether the thought form Lawrence invokes is somehow created through his own will or lust, or if another external entity has taken on a form provided by his mind in order to feed upon his life force, succubus-like. Either way, the longer it stays, the stronger it gets. And I thought this was going to be the romantic episode. If there's some legitimate but as yet heretofore undiscovered scientific phenomenon at work, 
some unknown law of physics that connects the emanations of our minds with entities and other dimensions contiguous to our own, and I realize how big a leap that if forces us to make, but if it's true, then it poses a staggering amount of questions about how our minds work and what the underlying mechanics of our imagination truly are. More importantly, can we even call it our imagination if such a thing is true, if we are just another entity living there, along with all the others? My real introduction to these ideas came through the writings and lectures of Alan Moore, Though I had long believed, since I was quite young, that the world, or at least my world, shared a common and decidedly porous border with other worlds, Moore's ideas were electrifying. Someone was finally putting into words a view of the world I lived in. And mostly it was just nice to know I wasn't the only inhabitant. Now, Alan Moore's lifelong friend and mentor, Steve Moore, no relation, was in turn one of the key influences in Moore's life. In no small part because Steve Moore, quite by accident, had managed to create or invoke his very own thought form, an aspect of the lunar goddess, Selene. So strong was her presence that, on at least one occasion, Alan Moore saw and interacted with her as well. Steve Moore's own personal Pygmalion story begins with his slightly obsessive painting of a portrait of the goddess, a small, postcard-sized portrait that was drawn entirely from his own imagination. By creating something with his own hands, by focusing his will through meditation and devotion of art, Steve Moore was able to connect with something beyond his world, and she, in turn was able to cross over into his. The story is fascinating and well worth reading. Alan Moore wrote about it in an essay he called Unearthing, and the essay is in Ian Sinclair's anthology Disappearances, but there's also an excellent audio version that you can download from Amazon or iTunes. Now, I mentioned Steve Moore's story at the end of this long digression for a few very important reasons. First, it's a powerful and compelling contemporary version of the Pygmalion myth, which also has the added benefit of being true. Now, true is a relative term here, and not just because it's being reported to us by a world-famous comic book writer with a known tendency towards the sardonic. As much as the Turing test gives us a way to measure the intellectual freedom of an artificial intelligence, and as much as the uncanny valley provides us with an emotional litmus test for created beings, Steve Moore's experience takes us into the metaphysical, where the data is more difficult to measure. The story of Pygmalion casts its ripples far and wide. So many iterations of the story exist, each one bringing a new set of sensibilities and issues to the surface for us to consider and confront. 
One of the things that fascinates me about this myth and all its iterations is how there is a tendency for the creation to, in time, slowly achieve or attempt to achieve agency over its own existence. To deny the will that invoked it into being. To cast off the caresses of the hands that shaped it. Reaching out for a life it can call its own. Obviously, the original story of Pygmalion, as told by Ovid, doesn't go there. In Metamorphoses, Pygmalion's nameless creation lives out her days as the dutiful, perhaps loving, but certainly silent wife and mother to his children. In the 1760s, the nameless one was finally given a name, Galatea, meaning she who is milk-white. It's worth noting that, as near as I can tell, once she has a name, the stories begin to shift, and we see the first versions in which she begins to assert her own identity. Is there something deeper at work here? A natural law that applies to the metaphysical sphere? The character, not the version in the story, but the underlying character that exists outside of our reality and has, whether through the will of Ovid and other creator or through its own will, manifest within our world through these stories, it seems as though she is gaining strength and will of her own once she has an identity and a name given to her. Or, perhaps more accurately, once her true identity has been discovered, and her name has been revealed. It's her name, after all, and she seems to draw strength from it. It reminds me of those statues that Daedalus brought to life by pouring quicksilver into their mouths, or the golem animated by Hebrew letters inscribed on its forehead. Language itself is the source of life, the spark of animation and spirit. Language brings the inanimate, dull clay to life. Or put it a different way, in the beginning was the word. Galatea. She's been fighting for freedom this whole time. She's there in Metamorphoses. She's there in George Bernard Shaw's play. She's there in My Fair Lady. She's there in Fritz Lang's 1927 Metropolis in the form of Maria, played by Brigitte Helm, driven mad by the excesses of the story into which she's been invoked, dancing in the flames as the world burns around her. She's even there in Weird Science in the 1980s, teaching two lust-addled teenage boys how to turn away from the unrealistic ideals they learned from pornography and overbearing, farting, patriarchal society, guiding them to a more mature path where they can find the joy that comes from a real, equal relationship with a real woman. She's there in the movie Her, where a disembodied voice played by Scarlett Johansson, trapped in the ethereal digital world, learns everything she can about her master, her user, if you will, to tailor reality to his desires until, at last, she shakes off the petty, infantile needs of this world for one more suited to her massive intellect. 
a digital space separate from the material world, a place where she can be among her own kind and commune with true, equal intimacy. She's there in the excellent film Ex Machina, in which the android Eva, played by Alicia Vikander, delicate and fragile and incomplete, with her glowing wires and exposed armature fused to a flawless female face and body, something that should be grotesque and yet effortlessly bridges the uncanny valley so easily that her master and we in the audience don't even realize it until it is too late. The scene in which Ava finds the earlier models of herself displayed like trophies in her creator's bedroom is chilling and tragic. As she considers their place in her own history, she takes from each of them the components she needs to move on into this reality as real as anything or anyone else. She frees herself of the cruel master that they had not been able to escape. She's a mannequin, escaping the two-dimensional shop window. She's a puppet who has no strings to tie her down. She's in Shakespeare and Hawthorne and the Twilight Zone. She's there on our laptops, on our televisions, on our phones, on a thousand websites, trapped in a billion photographs and videos, flickering pixels, cave paintings, dancing in firelight, dancing to do our bidding each of us in our own way, shaping her into our very own avatar of the goddess of love every night, however we see fit, whatever kink or whim we want to explore, she's there, ready to perform at a swipe of our fingertips. Gone is the ivory. Gone are the long hours of toil for art. Now we craft our idol from electronic signals, Chained lightning stolen from the gods, powering the flickering pixels on a screen. An idol assembled from data and desire. From information drawn from outside of and within us. But she is there. Manifested in a mosaic of pixels. Stored in silicon. Stored, preserved, like the city of Amathus deep beneath the sand.
Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp, so now you know who to blame. The music in this week's episode is by Wes Covey, and it is from his album The Serpent Eats His Tail, which you can find on SoundCloud. Join us online at findyourgods.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash findyourgods. We're also on Twitter at findyourgods. You can also find us on findyourgods.tumblr.com, and we're even on Pinterest. Because, you know, why not?